Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Alwish's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Castro Motor Oil and Budweiser, the king of beers. Glad to be with you again today, the 26th day of June 2019. As you're thinking about what's going on in the world of sports, of course, we're getting close to the halfway point in regards to Major League Baseball and its All-Star break. You got the NFL training camp probably coming up within about a month or about six weeks or somewhere in that time frame. So fans are pretty excited about the upcoming football season. You got NBA free agency. Uh, you got a little going on in the NHL as well. You know, the recap of the NHL draft as well as well as the NBA draft. And two seasons that are getting ready to go on in the fall. But of course, as you're, you know, you pass Memorial Day right in the middle, right on the peripheries of July 4th. Kind of the middle of the summer. So you really are spending a lot of time thinking about baseball and yeah, you could talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers out on the West Coast. Once again, kind of running, running roughshod over the National League. One of the best teams in baseball, have the best record in baseball, and look like that they could be considered a prohibitive favorites to get back to the World Series for the third straight season. And then you got what the Yankees are doing, setting a Major League record for the most consecutive games with the home run. And you wonder, I mean, the power that they have, one through nine in that order, how long can this streak go? They may be able to break this record ridiculously. You're talking about a 28 or 27 game in a row home run streak, which, yes, it is a big deal. But it's not as big of a record as you would think. It's not like it's 50 or 60. I think the Yankees, by the time they're done here, could make this record up near the equivalent of, let's say, a Joe DiMaggio 56-game hitting streak. Something that you'd say, hey, nobody in baseball history or no other team in baseball history, even in the home run era, would ever be able to duplicate. So I think that's, that's something that's interesting. You obviously got um, the other things going on. You got the Twins, who I think are a little bit of a surprise this year. And then, of course... If you want to go in New York and switch to the other side and maybe go to the dark side, you can talk about what's going on in Queens. And I, I do have a little bit of a different type of take that you may not want to hear, I think, if you're a member of the media. And I think, I, you know, as I get ready to do my show, I try to prepare from a different type of perspective as far as what is going to be perceived by what I say. Not that I care what anybody thinks, but... Unfortunately, there are certain things that make it more difficult to take shots at. In other words, I look at the media as being kind of part of what you call the equivalent of a sixth family. You know, the mob per se. You take a shot at the media and you could get blackballed to a point where they can make your job very hard. And I think it could, could apply to me. As much as it could apply to any sports figure, any Major League Baseball manager, any coach in any sport, I think the media has the ability, if they decide at some point to turn on you or you are the ones that create the reason for the media to turn on you, it, it could end up working out badly for you. Like I said, public perception 
completely put aside here. It's not something that I that I even want to bring up. I don't care about what the opinions are based off of a given story or how somebody looks when they say certain things to the media. It does create a snowball effect that could impact the way that person is treated. And I don't consider myself any different. So that's why when I want to put out some of the takes that I have in regards to certain things, I do have to see how they are going to be perceived. So you got the situation the other night where Mickey Calloway, the Mets manager, whether he was taking a series of abuse over time or he just decided that that was going to be the day that he was going to blow his top and take off his frustration on somebody obviously isn't a good look for him. And this is about as far as I'm going to go with it because I believe that the media, up to a certain point, considers the definition of their job to be a little bit more than it really is. And part of it is what's created by media as we see it right now. We can look at the way... Uh, all the, the internet is kind of thrown out there, all forms of social media, has created the need for things to see on a day-in and day-out basis that we as the people, the viewers, the people that are watching or listening probably don't need to see day-in and day-out. And that's, that's a problem. That's causing undue stress and pressure on people that probably shouldn't be giving pre-game and post-game press conferences every single day. Especially when your team's losing and it's the same old story. If you're the writer, if you're the person that is putting the microphone in front of that person's face saying, why, you know, why did you lose again? Why did you lose again? Or if that person is being particularly critical over you as the manager or you as the coach for things that aren't going right, there's going to come a point where it's going to boil over and you are going to lose your top. So from that perspective, I have no issue whatsoever with Mickey Callaway getting upset and pissed off and taking out his frustrations on one reporter. You could say the reporter was the nicest guy in the world. You could say that the reporter didn't even say anything that was leading to somebody getting as pissed off, but it could be a build-up to that. It could be a series of conversations before. It could be a series of the same reporter asking the same questions, which would get anybody, whether it's me or you, to a point where you'd be pissed off in hearing about it for the nth time. The other side of it, once again, is something that I'm going to continue to stress, is the fact that Mickey Calloway, just like Aaron Boone, if the Yankees were losing, just like the Phillies with Gabe Kapler, Phillies going through some struggles now, they're probably going to get themselves in a better position by taking on the lowly New York Mets, but the Phillies had lost seven straight games. The media probably is going to turn on Gabe Kapler and probably is getting a little tougher and tougher on a day-in and day-out basis. So when you are a manager of a Major League Baseball team that's losing, you're going to get a series of the same questions, but you're also going to get questions that are asked by people that for whatever reason don't understand the concept that you are just a voice, you're just a figurehead as a Major League Baseball manager and you are, unfortunately, not making any of the decisions that you're being criticized for day in and day out. So how many times could somebody start a conversation and say, hey, Mickey Callaway doesn't know what he's doing. He set this lineup. Mickey Callaway didn't set the lineup. 
You know, why isn't Edwin Diaz coming in for a five-out save in the eighth inning? Yet he's getting calls from Brody Van Wagenen when Brody Van Wagenen, the Mets general manager, is sitting on his couch in his house calling Mickey Calloway in the dugout. But the same reporters and the same fans and the same talk show host keep blaming the manager for decisions that he's not making. Now, I understand that there is a little bit of a gray area there. Exactly how much is the manager actually making decisions? How much of an impact does the manager have on a given ballgame? Is he setting the lineups? Probably not. Is he making the pitching changes? Well, you know what? There's a little more gray area in there. Does he have the ability to take out a pitcher when he wants to? Does he have the ability to go to a particular reliever if he wants to? I think those are questions, unfortunately, we're probably not going to know for a little while. In fact, you're going to need to see a couple of these robot managers decide that they don't want to be a Major League Baseball manager anymore and then go to the media, go to the press, write themselves their own book and tell the story about how their job is basically dictated, dictated to them by a computer and by a team's front office. Unfortunately, we're not going to know that right now. The other aspect of it that doesn't get brought up enough is the fact that why would any one of these Major League Baseball managers in a press conference say that it's not me that's making the decisions? That's going to make them look bad. That's going to put them in a bad position in a hierarchy of trust. They don't want to lose their job. And I understand in most cases they got guaranteed contracts for a couple of years. It's you know, it is employment at will, but you are under contract, so you're going to get the money whether you're managing a team or not managing a team, but nobody wants to get fired from their job. So why would you throw your employer under the bus when you're being asked the same questions day in and day out? And this, to me, is what makes the most sense about Mickey Callaway acting the way he did the other day, because Mickey Callaway is no different than you or me or any other human being. When you get berated, with the same crap day in and day out, you're gonna take it, you're gonna give respectable answers, you're gonna try the best to get through the situation. But at some point it's gonna boil over and you add losing on top of the same stupid questions that you're asked after game, after game, after game. There's gonna come a point where you're gonna blow your top and you're gonna lose it. And you know, same thing can happen at home. The same thing can happen amongst a group of friends. The same thing can happen amongst any other employer that's set up there in the world. If you're if you're not getting credit for what it is that you're doing, you're getting blamed for stuff that you have no control over. And your job basically is to follow a set of guidelines from your superiors. And then you keep getting berated by the media. Imagine in your job, whatever it is, to have a series of dictation from a boss above you. And the, some of the stuff could be questionable, but you have to do it anyway. And then imagine having a press on top of it that's asking you questions, basically trying to get you to throw your boss under the bus day in and day out. But you know if you throw your boss under the bus, you're probably going to lose your job. That's a Major League Baseball manager in 2019. So, you know, we're going to continue to hear from broadcasters, from fans, day after day after day with questions that are starting. Why is Jeff McNeil not in the lineup? What is Mickey Callaway doing? Mickey Callaway 
has no control over whether Jeff McNeil plays or not. That's Brody Van Wagen and that's the Mets analytics staff. So Edwin Diaz, who to start the season was only supposed to pitch the ninth inning, once again, a decision that was not made by the Major League Baseball manager, is not going to get five outs. Mickey Callaway did not have the ability to bring Edwin Diaz in in the eighth inning like fans wanted, like people in the media wanted. So that probably bothered Mickey Callaway because maybe deep down inside he wanted to do it. And when he's being pressed, why didn't you do it? He's probably thinking in his head, hey, you know what? I probably could have thought about doing it, but I wasn't allowed to. It's a little bit silly. So for those on the outside that are the press, what are you ex- exactly are you accomplishing when you're pummeling the same managers with the same questions when if you have baseball acumen, which I know a lot of people out in the media do, you'd understand that the Major League Baseball manager isn't the one making the decisions. But yet, you're going to play this role like you're an actor, like you're making believe you don't know anything about baseball. And I'm putting this very nicely because I do believe there's a lot of people in the media that do understand baseball. But maybe you're, in this case, you're playing a role that you don't understand a damn thing about baseball. And you're going to keep peppering the manager with the same question and then go on the offensive when this person finally bursts and explodes. This is something that was probably built up inside and meant to happen for a long time. And it probably needed to happen. And sure, it doesn't look good for the manager. It doesn't look good for the team. It certainly doesn't look good for the team when you go out there and lose your next two games. But this is something that was probably built up inside but created by the media. The media is not 100% responsible for it but is certainly enabling it when you go out there and have a post-game press conference game after game after game when the same issues exist that the manager cannot control. And you can't fire the manager for his inability to control this because this is something that was generated by the front office. The front office has set this up to where this manager is basically castrated, basically doesn't have the ability to make his own decisions within a game, is getting calls from the general manager telling him to take Jacob DeGrom out after six innings on Sunday. And in, in the end, he's, he's the one that has to take the hit for everything. And the media probably should take a step back and relax as we're going to hear this part of the show, this is the extra music where you hear the crying and the typical wife yelling. Well, the only stuff you'll hear on the passball show, as we're obviously in the middle of the show, that doesn't matter. We're going to hear crying, we're going to hear yelling and screaming because yeah, that's what happens when you have a show like this. Once again, this is the passball show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Um... Last point I want to make about this, and I hope I hope I've I've made enough sense with this, because you're talking about a position, and, and listen, I think anybody could relate this to the job that they have. Imagine being in charge of something, but not having the ability to make the decisions to make things go the best that you need to go. Imagine being a major league baseball manager, not being able to make your own pitching changes, not being able to determine what relievers to go through not being able to determine which players are going to be available on a given day and which players are not going to be available on a given day. 
And it's unfortunate. But to, to add to it, to have the press that's going to ask you the same stupid questions every day, like the press knows everything and you don't. The press should be a little bit smarter. They should open up on their baseball acumen and understand that a Major League Baseball manager in 2019 has been castrated, has basically had his cojones, his you know manhood taken away from him. And I think it's unfortunate. But the media is going to keep asking the questions as if the manager has the ability to make these decisions. Edwin Diaz is not coming in a game in the eighth inning with zero or one outs. And that's not Mickey Calloway's fault. So stop asking him the same stupid question game after game if you're going to get all defensive when Mickey Calloway finally blows his top on a reporter. As we hit what we'll call the opening point here at a pass ball show. Um... This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our, our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, the smoothness, and drinkability. You'll find it no beer at any cost. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a tease here, and I'm going to go over this at the end of the show today. I'm going to envision a scenario in a minor league baseball game. Tenth inning, top of the tenth inning, visiting teams up. They already have one run on the board. There's runners at second and third and one out. Batter hits a fly ball. The deep center field goes off the center fielder's glove and off the wall. Two runs score. Center fielder throws the ball into second base. After the play is over, the umpires get together, and they end up determining that the inning is over and there's three outs. So I'll say it one more time. One out, one run in, top of the 10th inning, runners at second and third. Fly ball hit to deep center field, goes off the center fielder's glove and off the wall, two runs score. Center fielder throws the ball into second base. After the umpires get together, now minor league baseball, there's a second base umpire, there's the home plate umpire, they get together, they have a little conference, they determine that there's three outs and the inning is over. I'll go over this at the end of the show. So i got to be honest, I mean, I've been thinking about things that have happened in sports history that have kind of made me happy as a fan. And we can talk about historical things, great moments. You know, if I was around to see Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, it'd be, it'd be pretty fascinating. I would have loved to see Ted Williams in that same season hit over 400. I would love to see him go into that doubleheader, you know, with a 399 point, you know, five batting average and go out there and get six hits and eight at-bats and get his batting average up to 406. I would have loved to see Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. There's a lot of things that I would like to see from a fan's perspective as a, as a fan of the sport. But as an individual team fan, one of the things that stands out is when a team makes a big acquisition. And I think about myself being a Mets fan, and I try to remember certain times in my life where I was as excited as anything to see my team make a certain move and acquire a certain player. And, of course, the names Mike Piazza, Pedro Martinez, Johan Santana, probably the three biggest acquisitions I've ever seen the Mets make in my lifetime that fired me up the most as a fan. And I'll admit, there was another one that fired me up and ended up not working out so much. 
But when the Mets got move on in the 2001 offseason, I was just as excited. Obviously, that didn't work out. The 2002 Mets became the second worst team money can buy. So then I think of hockey. And I remember as a New Jersey Devils fan, the single move that fired me up the most, that made me the most excited to see in New Jersey Devils hockey history was the acquisition of Ilya Kovalchuk. And I thought we had another move like that that happened over this past weekend. And I think about it, and I make the equation, and a lot of people don't know, my favorite baseball player that doesn't play for the New York Mets, I'm a fan of the New York Mets, happens to be Max Scherzer. So imagine the feeling that I would have if the Mets, and it's not going to happen, but acquired Max Scherzer. Not only is this my favorite baseball player that doesn't play for my team, but now he's playing for my team as well. And we had the equivalent of this happen over the weekend when it was announced that the New Jersey Devils acquired defenseman P.K. Subban from the Nashville Predators. Subban, one of the better defensemen in the National Hockey League, but over the last several years has grown as one of my favorite players that does not, doesn't play for the team that I root for. So... I'm wondering for everybody out there, do you have anything similar as a fan of, you know, whether it's the Yankees or the Knicks or, you know, you're out on the West Coast and you root for the Lakers or the Dodgers. Maybe you are that fired up about LeBron James going to the LA Lakers because you're always a Lakers fan. You also rooted for LeBron. I'm sure a lot of these things happen over the course of the world of sports. I remember being a Jose Canseco fan as a kid. And let's say I was a Yankees fan and I rooted for Canseco when I was growing up. And the, the Yankees acquired Canseco at the end of the 1990s and the 2000s. It probably would have been a big moment. So I think there's a lot of different comparisons that you can make when it comes to, you know, your favorite team. You got pl favorite players on your favorite team. But also, as a person that enjoys the sport, you tend to root for and like players that are on different teams. Sure, you don't want that player to be the reason that your favorite team loses, but you really want to see that player do well because there are things that, you know, that player exhibits or, you know, things that stand out about that player that make you want to root for them. And then all of a sudden, you put them both together when they're on your favorite team. So I find that fascinating. Um, this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for your entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I heard Joe Theismann the other day making a couple comments, and yeah, they weren't they weren't meant to be bad. They were pretty much analytical statements about what the Washington Redskins should do with their quarterback position going forward. Now, of course, to summarize what has happened in the past year or so, you had longtime starter or starter for about three years or so after being franchised two years in a row, Kirk Cousins leaving Washington and signing a big deal with the Minnesota Vikings. Through year one, it obviously hasn't worked out too well for them, for for Cousins or the Washington Redskins. Redskins bring in Alex Smith. They sign him to a big deal. Of course, he has the horrific leg injury that kind of made you think of Joe Theismann in the 1980s and a terrible leg injury that he suffered on national television. 
So you know for the foreseeable future that Alex Smith isn't going to be there. Colt McCoy, the backup, ends up breaking his leg. So all of a sudden you got Mark Sanchez and Josh Johnson at the quarterback position. The Redskins are aggressive this offseason, make a trade with the Denver Broncos, who had just gotten themselves Joe Flacco. So they trade, they in turn trade Case Keenum to the Washington Redskins. So now you got Keenum and you got Colt McCoy on the mend, and you got Alex Smith on the back burner trying to make a full recovery. Draft comes up. Things work out optimally for the Washington Redskins, who were thinking about moving up in the draft. They end up being able to take Dwayne Haskins out of Ohio State with the 15th overall pick. As this team's getting set to play this year, there are moderate expectations. I don't think there are people that are experts out there that are expecting the Washington Redskins to win the Super Bowl, but they should certainly be in the mix for the NFC East. Yeah, you look at the Giants, I think they're kind of going backwards. The Eagles... You wonder, can they really win without Nick Foles? You know, Foles has played in the playoffs over the last couple of years, obviously led them to a Super Bowl. Now he's quarterbacking the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's going to be a very big season for Carson Wentz. You got the Dallas Cowboys, who looked good last year. But I think the NFC East, as we get set to start making some predictions within another month or so, it's pretty wide open. So the Redskins are in a spot where they say, hey, what should we do? We got Keenum in there. He's a veteran. He's been a starting quarterback over the last couple seasons in the NFL. Obviously took the Minnesota Vikings very deep into the playoffs a couple years ago. The miraculous win against the New Orleans Saints. Ends up last year, of course, in Denver. Logic would say, let Keenum start, ease Haskins in. Now, obviously, it's going to be dictated by the performance of Dwayne Haskins in training camp. If he looks like he's ready, if he looks like he's ready to be an NFL quarterback day one, then he probably should start. And you've seen a progression over the last 10 to 20 to 30 years to see how quarterbacks went from sitting two to three to four seasons to playing right away. A lot of the better quarterbacks are the quarterbacks that are rated towards the top of the draft are essentially getting the opportunity to play right away. Look at what happened last year. Sam Darnold in there right away. Baker Mayfield, a couple weeks, and he's in there. By the mid-part of the season, Josh Allen and Josh Rosen were starting for the Buffalo Bills and the Arizona Cardinals, respectively. You should expect to see something similar happen this year, not just with Dwayne Haskins, but probably with Daniel Jones of the Giants. It's going to be sooner rather than later that these young quarterbacks that are viewed as the future of the particular franchise are going to be thrown out there to the fire and playing every day. Of course, Daniel Jones will eventually be taken over for Eli Manning, who did the same thing when he took over for Kurt Warner when the New York Giants had a winning record in 2004. So how does Joe Theismann get, in, get into this discussion? Joe Theismann you know, is, is believing... Now, based off the schedule of the Washington Redskins, who I think have three divisional games and a game against the Bears and the Patriots in their first five, and if I memorize that correctly, great. If not, and you're a Redskins fan, please let me know. Theismann believes that the strength of the schedule at the beginning of the year is too much to throw a rookie quarterback in there. I disagree with that up to a point because I think if the guy's ready, he should be able to play against the best of the best or the worst of the worst. So the competition should not be the big deal. Now, you did bring in a veteran quarterback in Keenum, probably not to sit on the bench. At some point he will be, but at least get a chance with the veteran in there to see how he works with this offense. 
maybe you could get three wins in five games or maybe get off to a four and one start and maybe believe that you could go out there and win yourself the NFC East. And if that happens and if you're able to succeed with Keenum, with Haskins sitting there, with the clipboard learning, I think it will be the best thing for the franchise going forward. That being said, things aren't leaning towards that. The expectations are not that the Washington Redskins are going to win four out of their first five games. And if that doesn't happen, then obviously the fans and the media and the people that are going to be on you day after day are going to be asking you if you're Jay Gruden, the head coach of the Washington Redskins, is Dwayne Haskins playing soon? When is he playing? Are you going to see him in there? When are you going to make the decision to go to your starting quarterback of the future? So what I have to get into with Theismann is I think he, if you made the comparison of Joe Theismann to Dwayne Haskins, maybe they could have the same impact. You never know. Ten years down the road, you could look and say, wow, Dwayne Haskins had a really good career as a quarterback of the Washington Redskins. Yeah, you look back to the days of Doug Williams and Mark Rippon, but you also got guys like Robert Griffin III who can never stay healthy and other quarterbacks along the way that have not gotten the job done for the Washington Redskins. So as, as much as you could talk about Theismann being one of the best, you could also talk about some of the other star quarterbacks, guys that you've given a lot of uh, airtime to, a lot of popularity to, and haven't gotten the job done. So I think those are issues that you have to think about. But when it comes down to it, Theismann came into the league, came into the National Football League in 1974. And believe it or not, he was actually returning punts for the Redskins of that year. So it took Theismann a while before he got the reins of the quarterback. George Allen was the quarterback of a team that ends up winning 10 games, doing a pretty good job that year but certainly didn't need Joe Theismann. They had Billy Kilmer, who started 10 games that, that year. Sonny Jurgensen was the backup. Theismann threw 11 passes as the backup quarterback that year, but for the most part was returning punts. So a couple years go by, 75, 76, he finally makes his first start as a quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Starts five games that year out of 14. Starts six games the next year out of 14 in 1977. Finally, in 1978, starts 14 of the 16 games. The team ends up finishing 500. At this time, Joe Theismann is 29 years old. So you could think about it. You could think of maybe a Steve Young or an Aaron Rodgers or some of the other quarterbacks that have actually sat behind a good quarterback in a good organization for a little while. But you're looking in the year of 2019 – as it's not happening that often. It's not very common that you see a quarterback sit for a couple years before they end up suiting up and playing. It's a now type of league, and I think the development that quarterbacks are getting in college is certainly superior or in a little bit of a better position than it used to be in past years. I think they're more prepared to play in the NFL than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think Steve Young benefited from sitting behind Joe Montana. And Aaron Rodgers benefited from sitting behind the great Brett Favre. And you look at Philip Rivers, he benefited from sitting behind Drew Brees that first year. So there's a lot of quarterbacks that you can see have had success 
and they've sat behind very good quarterbacks. The question is, you look at a guy like Case Keenan, is he on the level of any of those all-time quarterbacks? Of course he's not. So I think he's going to be more vulnerable than some like a legend. You know, you're not going to sit Brett Favre for Aaron Rodgers unless you're ready to move on from Brett Favre. And the other thing, the other aspect that's got brought up a couple times in the show already is if you are a starting quarterback, if you're an Eli Manning, you're not necessarily going to be, excuse me, molding your replacement. You're not going to be training the guy to take your job. I'm not going to bring somebody into my show, show them the ropes, show them everything that I know, and you know, wish them well as they take my job and I go out there and I don't have a job. So you understand how that works in the NFL and why quarterbacks are very possessive over the very starting quarterback job that they have. Eli Manning, sure, will work with Daniel Jones. He'll work out with him. He will encourage him. But he's certainly not going to want to get Daniel Jones to a point where he's ready to start in week one and Eli Manning is holding a clipboard sitting on the bench. Brett Favre didn't want to do that. Drew Brees didn't want to do that. Joe Montana didn't want to do that. There's a reason that all these quarterbacks ended up moving on, ended up having their team either release or trade them so the other guy can start. The New England Patriots had to make a decision between, between Tom Brady and Jimmy Garoppolo. That wasn't because Bill Belichick wanted to get rid of Garoppolo. It was because Garoppolo was certainly ready to be an NFL quarterback and was probably being trained or thought of as the quarterback of the future in the New England Patriots. The problem is, is when you have a star, an all-time quarterback, a Hall of Famer, as your starting quarterback, and he doesn't want to leave yet, he's not going to make it easy for that guy. He's not going to want that guy to take his job. So at some point, you have to make the decision between the veteran quarterback that you have and the rookie that you have that you're trying to mold to be your quarterback in the future. And you have to believe that you're right in both of these situations. The Giants may believe that they're right when they move on from Eli Manning and go on to Daniel Jones. Dave Gettleman seems like he, he was in love with this guy. This is the guy that he wanted to take at number six when a lot of experts thought that he was taken a little too early in the draft. Where This position where he was taken in a draft is not going to matter. All it's going to matter is, is this guy going to be the quarterback in the Giants' future? Is he going to lead this team to prominence? And I think the same question we asked with the Washington Redskins and Dwayne Haskins. If this is the guy that you believe in and he's ready, he has gotten a good education, not just you know, learning things in college, but also learning things on the football field and is ready to guide the offense of the Washington Redskins, I would put him out there. And I'd put him out there week one. Joe Theismann, great quarterback, probably a borderline Hall of Fame candidate, won a Super Bowl, lost another Super Bowl, put up some very good numbers over a very good pro football career, was not a starter in the NFL until he was 29 years old. So that perspective from a guy that succeeded with that does not apply to this generation. A starting quarterback in the NFL is identified as a young age, gets enough education from a football standpoint, and for the most part is able to run an NFL offense within their first year or so. So I'm in favor of Dwayne Haskins playing week one for the Washington Redskins. I'm also in favor of Daniel Jones playing week one for the New York football Giants if he is determined to be ready. Because he is the future. If he knows what he's doing, he might as well get the reps day number one. 
Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Castrol, engineered for today's smaller cars. little recap of the show today. I talked a little bit about the media's responsibility, and some of it is not their fault. And I said all along, you know, when I speak out against the media, I could put myself in a situation like I'm interfering with the sixth family. Not like I'm going to get whacked. Not like somebody's going to come out there, for, you know, reporter or writer and get to kill me. But I could be blackballed if I take a hard enough stance against the media. Doesn't mean that I don't feel that way. You've heard me express my opinion about what the media has turned into. You know, they used to report the news. You used to turn the news on and be able to see facts. Hey, this happened. That happened. This is black and white. There's no gray area in there. This is absolutely what happened. But what they've done is they've taken what you'd see on page 12 and 13 of the newspapers, for those of you that remember it, and take that opinion column and throw that out there into their stories. Well, this part of it is a fact, but we're going to bring in our experts to throw in their opinion on what they think happened. And the same thing applies to the world of sports. So when you know, you've got certain opinions being just as valuable as facts, and you throw that in with the overboard nature of these press conferences, which you're going to have a Major League Baseball manager, an NFL head coach, an NBA coach, a hockey coach, be asked questions before a game, in some cases during a game, and after every game, whether you win or lose. And if you're losing, these same reporters are going to build themselves an agenda with you because they're going to start to be critical of what they think that you're doing. But then you look at the fact and you realize the guy isn't even doing what you think that they're doing because they're not responsible for doing what you think that they're doing. And it just spirals and spirals. So you have reporters asking Major League Baseball managers questions about things that they have no control over. And it's not that the Major League Baseball manager has lost control. It's the fact that the manager has never had that control. That's not part of their job description. The decisions that are being made that the reporter is critical of are being made over the manager's head. So that manager can't stand there and say, hey, I didn't do it. That wasn't my call. That was my superior's call. Because they're going to lose their job if they do that. And it's just a vicious circle that the media, including myself, has to take some responsibility for. We also spoke about P.K. Subban, really excited that he's joining the New Jersey Devils. We'll get into some hockey previews as we get closer to the season. Obviously, them drafting Jack Hughes, they got Taylor Hall. You know, maybe if they finally get some uh, some net mining, you know, they they may have a good season this year. Also spoke about the Washington Redskins, Joe Theismann implying that Dwayne Haskins should probably start later on in the season or maybe through at least the first five games. When Joe Theismann played, I also believe, number one, the game was different back then. It wasn't so reliant on the quarterback. And also... There was enough talent and dearth amongst the quarterback position that you could have a good quarterback and let him sit for a handful of seasons. You can't really do that anymore because I think the college quarterbacks are coming out a lot more educated, a lot more prepared for the National Football League. And I do think that's a big enough thing that has to be thought about. If the Redskins 
are sold on Dwayne Haskins being their quarterback in their future, and they think he's ready and should start week one. Same thing with Daniel Jones and the Giants. Forget about Eli Manning. Eli Manning is there. He's a great ambassador for the team. Maybe you got to cut him. I don't know. But if Daniel Jones proves that he's ready to be the quarterback for week number one, there should be no reason why he shouldn't be behind center week one for the National Football League Giants. Last point I want to make, I, I brought this up earlier. I was talking about that scenario in a minor league baseball game. And, you know, what could cause? Because I was sitting there at this, this particular game watching top of the 10th inning, runners at second and third, runner in already, one out. Guy, it's a fly ball to center field. Center fielder going all the way back, jumps up against the fence. Ball goes off his glove. Two runs score. Center fielder throws the ball into second base. All of a sudden, you're watching, and you're like, there's a delay here. There's obviously no instant replay because it's a minor league baseball game. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. You have two umpires are huddled up, the second base umpire and home plate umpire. And you're coming across the decision. And all of a sudden, you see that the players on the field coming off. And you're like, what the hell just happened? It doesn't make any sense. And for anybody that was at, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention where where exactly this happened. This was the Lakewood Blue Claws game last Friday night, which I happened to be out there, uh, you know, with, with 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 some family and friends. Where as being in the crowd, you had no idea what was going on. So this was something that I'd never seen before, but. End up having it clarified after a little bit of time. So it turns out that it was determined that the center fielder caught the ball. And looking at it, it didn't look like the center fielder caught the ball. There was no replay available. The two umpires had to huddle together to make the determination that the center fielder did catch the ball. And I thought it was fascinating. It looked like the ball went off his glove. Two more runs would have scored. So because it was rolled it out in the center field, then a center fielder throwing the ball to second base meant that the, the player at second base was out, of course, on the force. Now, if you happen to be in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, there's really only one place to stop. It's two ways, one passion food truck. Located at Ney Avenue and Green Ridge Street. Once again, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Two ways, one passion food truck. Their vision began many years ago with a dream to bring the passion that they feel about food and the people that they care about. While infusing traditional Mexican ingredients with unique herbs and spices to create bold and unexpected flavors. Come experience the love. The number, if you want to get a hold of them, is 7, I'm sorry, uh, 570-800-8115, 570-800-8115, once again, located on Nayog Avenue and Green Ridge Street, Scranton, Pennsylvania, two ways, one passion, food truck. We'll be back with you next week. Once again, this is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. If you've uh, viewed this through Periscope or Facebook, I do thank you. Um, if you're watching the premiere on YouTube, I'm glad that you're a part of the program as well. Also available on iTunes, Google Play. Once again, the Passball Show, you can always check out JohnPLA.com for the latest that's going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unified America. So I hope everybody has a good weekend. We'll be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always.
I'll see you on the other side.